Good morning and welcome to the online gathering of West Village Church. If you are new here with us, I want to welcome you and introduce myself. My name is Andrew and I, along with several other people, have the privilege of being uh, being part of a team that gets to give some leadership to our church family. And if you are new with us, first of all, let me just say that in this particular season of social distancing and social isolation and uh, pandemic measures, it can be so easy to flit in and out of something, especially in the online uh, sphere. And, and our heart's desire is to see you moving from being a guest or or even maybe a spectator uh, to becoming part of our family, becoming part of our church. And if you want to engage in that journey, the most simple way that you can do so is by texting the number that you see on the screen in front of you. And myself or one of our other staff members will be happy to, uh, to just reach out to you and let you know what some of the next steps on that process may be. Now, as you, if you've been watching from the beginning, you probably heard our hosts for this morning talk about Advent because currently we are in the season of Advent, the four kind of weeks that lead up to Christmas. And if you're not familiar with the term Advent, uh, then you may not understand what it means, but traditionally Advent has been understood as a season of preparation, a season of anticipation, uh, maybe even longing or yearning. And I think as we find ourselves in this current pandemic reality, uh, Advent's probably a pretty appropriate term for how many of us are feeling. Uh, this morning, I, I looked at the news and saw that our prime minister promised that there's going to be a couple hundred thousand vaccines by the end of the year. And, and there's a, a little bit of that longing for a day when something comes along like a vaccine or herd immunity or whatever it is that allows us to return back to some semblance of the good old days where you don't have to worry about going into the grocery store with a mask, where you can get together with your family, where you can have people into your home, where you don't have to like worry about if you're too close to the person in line in front of you. We are, in essence, in a time of Advent as we yearn and long and wait for this coming good news proclamation that the pandemic is over. Now, as we find ourselves in this moment, we might be tempted to simply look at the current disruptive reality that we are experiencing as just an inhibitor to life. We look around and see life is supposed to be this particular way, And this pandemic has meant that it can't be. But what I want to do this morning and what I hope you have seen us doing over the past four weeks is invite you to look at this disruption, not simply as an inhibitor to life, but through new lenses and maybe see that in it, God is at work bringing about his redemptive purposes. And so uh, we're going to turn to Luke's gospel in a second. And we're going to look at a series of disruptive moments that Luke recalls for us. And in each, what I hope you see, and I think that you'll, you'll be able to see it in our own reality as we unpack it in the text, is that it's not simply despite the disruptions, not simply um, in the midst of the disruptions, but actually through the disruptions that God is at work bringing about his redemptive purposes for humanity. So if you have your Bibles, turn in, in them to Luke chapter two. Uh, for those of you who have grown up in the church, uh, this might be for you the quintessential Christmas story. 
when my wife Shannon and I first got married, we were talking about the Christmas traditions that we wanted to bring into our our new kind of family unit together from our uh, families of origin. And Shannon made it very clear that on Christmas Day, we were going to read the Christmas story. And I said, well, hon, there's actually two Christmas stories, so to speak. There's uh, Matthew's account and Luke's account. She's no, no, no. There's only one Christmas story. It's the shepherds. It's the baby Jesus getting born in the stable. It's the angels singing. This is that quintessential Christmas account that you think of when you think of the Christmas story. So let's open up our Bibles to Luke chapter two. And we're going to dive in right here in verse one. It starts off by saying this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Before I continue on with Luke's account, what I want us to see quickly here is that Luke is wanting his audience, including us, to be able to see that he's not simply writing fiction. He's not simply arbitrarily throwing something together, but that he's carefully, historically writing and an historically accurate account for us, his readers, to be able to look back in history and locate. He's telling us exactly what took place, who was in charge of these areas so that his readers would be able to go back and be like, oh, this actually happened. It's important for us to understand that what Luke is telling us here is fact. He's rooting us in reality. And he continues on in his text by saying this, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph, who we've been introduced to in the last couple of weeks, also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because, pay attention to this church, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. And while they were there, The time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn son and she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. Now, I don't know if if you caught this, but talk about a disruptive moment. I mean, just just look at the, the facts on the page here. So Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor of that day and age, the most powerful person in the world at that time, at least that part of the world, on a whim decides he wants to figure out how many people live in his empire. Why? Because he wants to raise taxes. It's all about the money. And then two very ordinary average people, Mary and Joseph, living ordinary average lives get massively affected by this seemingly disjointed decision. It's a decision that has dramatic social, financial, relational impacts on their lives that they have no control over. Sound familiar? I mean, for for many of us, we are experiencing something that is out out of our control. I mean, for some of us, we, we give responsibility of that to government policy or, or public health policy, or it's just simply to this viral infection that seems to be invading our world. There's this force of some kind, this power structure of some kind that is out there that is now making our very lives as just regular, ordinary, average people dramatically disrupted. Yeah, let me just paint this picture out for us a little bit of what Mary and Joseph would be experiencing. I mean, so, so take Joseph, for example. 
Here's a guy who he's living in Nazareth. It's a small town. We know from other parts of the Bible that, that Joseph was a, uh, a house builder. Lots of times the text translates it carpenter, but we actually know historically that houses were likely not made of wood at that time, probably more stone or brick. So he might've been a stonemason or a bricklayer. And Nazareth is like a dinky little town. And so likely he had business contracts and partnerships and connections in the cities around that small area so he could make a livelihood. And suddenly a governmental official makes a policy decision that means that he is going to have to leave his job, his source of income, his connections and move to this other town, 150 kilometers away. And I'll think about Mary You know, historians believe that Mary was probably relatively young when she got betrothed to Joseph, maybe 14, 15 years old, which is more common back in that day and age. We don't know for sure, but it's likely that she grew up in around that region, that her family was there. Her friends were there. Her in-laws were there. Everyone she could expect to be her social structure of support in this moment was stripped away from her by this decree given by Caesar Augustus. Talk about disruptive. Many of us can feel this disruptive moment in our own realities. I know for ourselves, we just had a baby and man, our, our, our support network, our friendships is, is, is difficult. We feel, I was, t- I was talking to my wife earlier this week and she was just mourning. She's like, this was not the maternity leave I expected. You know, I imagine that I would be able to do play dates with our daughter, that I'd be able to have people in our homes, that I would have these systems of support that have suddenly been dramatically disrupted by something out of our control. Now, let's take that a little bit further and, and look at what happens. So Mary and Joseph have to leave everything behind, travel to this town 150 kilometers south of them, which isn't like, you know, that's like, okay, we're going from here to, you know, Nanaimo or Campbell River or something like that on the island. You know, that's a couple hours maybe. No, this is days journey. They didn't have cars. They didn't have planes. They were walking it or taking a donkey, which doesn't walk much faster than a human. Now just imagine for a second what it would feel like to be a nine month pregnant woman traveling 150 kilometers on foot or on donkey. As I said, my wife just had a baby a couple months ago. And so I asked her, I said, uh, Shannon, hon, what do you think that would have felt like for Mary? And I can't even repeat uh, here in this setting what she said, because there were some choice words that she had to share with me. But let, let me just even like think about it this way, okay? Uh, everyone knows pregnant ladies, like bladder control is like a thing, right? I mean, you have this human being growing inside of you, pushing all your internal organs around, sitting on your bladder. Okay, so just imagine what it would feel like to be going on this donkey, clip-clop, 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 up and down, up and down, up and down. That baby bouncing on your bladder, bouncing on your bladder, bouncing on your bladder. I mean, Mary was probably peeing her pants every five seconds. This was an uncomfortable, inconvenient portion of their life. So disruptive. And then, you know, because, hey, wife's nine months pregnant, we're going a little bit slower than everyone else. By the time Joseph gets to Bethlehem, there ain't any room for them to stay. 
Now, uh, again, some translations, older translations have translated the, uh, a particular word as in. Uh, the NIV actually translates it here as guest room, which is a little bit more accurate because Bethlehem was like a dinky town. It didn't have an inn. It wasn't like a place that people stayed. So if you went there, you were going there to stay with family. And we know again that Joseph was, uh, was probably originally from there. His parents were from there. Someone in his family line was from there. And so he likely had some second cousins or third cousins that he could stay with. And, and yet when they got there, all those rooms were full. And so where did they get stuck with the animals? With the animals. So life has been disruptive. Your support structure, your financial security, all of that gone. You have to travel to this other place where you don't necessarily know anyone well. And you get there and you don't even have a comfortable place to stay to have your baby. And so they stay with the animals. And it says that Mary lies her brand new baby in a manger. It's what I heard John Piper call a stinking feeding trough. Earlier in the year, we were up and having a family vacation in Parksville and my daughter loves animals. And so we went to a petting zoo. And as we were at this petting zoo, there was this, this uh, little area that had a couple of calves in it. These, these young cows were, were there. And so we went in to, to see it. And yeah, the cows were super cute, but it stunk. I mean, those cows peed and pooed everywhere. You know, they're eating their hay, chewing their cud. So just imagine that environment as the reality in which Jesus is being born into. I mean, disruptive and every single level that you can think imaginable. And then we go back to the beginning and who's it all attributed to? On the surface, it seems like it's attributed to Caesar Augustus. But you see, Luke is actually setting us as his readers up. He wants us to first look and say, oh man, how incredible is Caesar that he can on a whim move the entire world. It says that every single person had to go to their own town to register. This affected literally everyone. Everyone's lives were disrupted. And Jesus, uh, sorry, Luke wants us to see here that it is not in fact Caesar who's the one that we should be focused on in this time of disruption. But the seemingly insignificant baby born to two ordinary average people who are completely affected by this disruption, lying in a stinking feeding trough. See, for the first century Jewish reader, one of the people that Luke would have been writing for. He, he's been dropping little hints, little breadcrumbs along the way for us as to how significant Jesus is. Uh, he says here that Joseph is going to Bethlehem. Why? Because he is of the line of David. If you're a first century Jew, alarm bells are starting to go off in your head and you're thinking, okay, I know that God promised David that he would raise up one of his descendants to be his forever king, bringing about his rule and reign over all of the people of God. 
Even the fact that they're going to Bethlehem is bringing those alarm bells kind of to full blast because later as God continued to speak through his prophets, he he filled out for his people just how he was going to do this. And one of the things he said is that he's going to raise this person up from Bethlehem. They would have been thinking, oh, I heard this before. Where did I hear this before? From the prophet Micah. See, Micah came and he brought God's message of both like judgment to the people of Israel saying like, hey, I called you to live a particular way, to be just, to be merciful, to be kind, to be my declare and demonstrate people to the world around you. And you have utterly failed at that. But take heart because I am going to intervene and do what you could not. Listen to what Micah writes here in Micah chapter five, verse two. Again, Micah, hundreds of years before Jesus, but spelling out exactly what is going to take place in this moment. Micah says this in chapter five, verse two, but you Bethlehem Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be the ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Micah says, there's going to be born out of Bethlehem, someone who has uh, origins all the way back, who's, who's been there for a very, very long time. John in his gospel says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. Jesus existed in ancient times. Verse three, Micah goes on to say this, therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of his brothers will return to join the Israelites. Chris talked about this over the last couple of weeks, but there's this period between the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 400 years where God does not speak, 400 years of silence. And Micah says that time will end when she who is pregnant has a baby. What's Luke doing right here? He's he's looking back at that passage to help his readers understand the significance of this moment says, when that happens, the lost children of God will come back and be gathered into him as his people. And he goes on to say in verse four, he will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord, his God, and they will live securely for then his greatness will reach the ends of the earth. On a surface account, it looks like Caesar Augustus's glory and greatness reaches the ends of the earth. But Luke's contention here is that it is not Caesar, but a humble baby born to peasants lying in a stinking feeding trough who's actually going to bring God's salvation to bear on his people. And that has deep significance as we look at this disruptive moment, because if that is true, it means that it isn't Caesar Augustus who has orchestrated these events in isolation, but behind him, there's a much greater power at work. 
Joby Green, who is a scholar and an author, wrote a commentary on this particular book. And he says this, and I think it's helpful for us. He says, on one level, Joseph's journey is the consequence of the almighty decree of Augustus. On another, even the universal rule of Augustus is conceived as subordinate to another purpose, the aim of God. Church, it would have been easy for Mary and Joseph to simply look at what they were experiencing as this cosmic disruption to their lives. And yet what Luke wants us not to miss is that it is not simply in this disruption, not simply despite this disruption, but actually through this disruption that God was at work bringing about his redemptive purposes and his redemptive plan into effect. And church, that is good news for us because if this is true, even in the midst as we wrestle through this current pandemic reality, as we advent, as we wait for something to change. Our hope is ultimately not going to be in a vaccine. Our hope is not ultimately going to be in government officials or in a change of government or a change of policy. Because we can see that behind this disruption, there is a good God who can work all things together for our good and his glory. Let me say that again. Behind all of this disruption, we can have hope because we know that there is a good God who can work all things together for our good and his glory. It can be so easy in this moment to get caught up in fear and anxiety and frustration. I felt this. I felt this in a few minutes. We're recording this on Monday, December 7th. In a few minutes, Dr. Bonnie Henry is going to get on the TV and likely, I don't know, but tell us that we're going to have to go through two more weeks of high intensity restrictions. And it's not something I'm looking forward to hearing. It's frustrating for me. I feel like I don't have any control over it. And yet in the midst of this, if my ultimate hope isn't in Dr. Bonnie Henry or a shift of government or anything like that, I don't have to despair. I don't have to feel that anxiety that can come up with that because I know that ultimately behind this particular moment, God is at work. And that should actually have big implications for us. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus in this moment, then what it should do is not only give you hope, but start to open your eyes to see this not simply as a disruption, but as an opportunity. Let's continue on in Luke's account. Verse eight, he says this, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. 
But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. I just think about how crazy this sounds. What's the sign? You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Mary and Joseph has this disruptive reality that brings them to Bethlehem. Right after this, there's these shepherds. And if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you might've been told before that shepherds are kind of like these despised outcasts of society. Uh, just ignore that. That's, that's not legit. Uh, shepherds were not despised. They weren't hated. They weren't like thieving people, but they were kind of like your lower middle-class citizens, blue collar workers, you know, guys who probably didn't have that college education, not necessarily a ton of extra skills, just kind of running sort of the the family business, so to speak. And nothing wrong with any of those things, if that's your reality. Uh, Just to paint a picture that these guys were ordinary average Joes, people without significance. Again, you look at this and it just doesn't seem to make sense. We have Caesar Augustus who with a snap of his finger can make the whole world shift. And yet God comes to these ordinary average Joes to explain to them what he has done in this moment. Why is that? I think it's helpful for us to actually look how the shepherds respond when they encounter the angels. The angel comes to them and it says that they are terrified. Terrified. Why is that? Throughout history, when God's people have an encounter with him, this is a typical response. Fear. One example is found in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah, this prophet, gets brought into the throne room of God in a vision. And immediately as he sees God, he falls down on his face. He starts crying out in fear. And he says, like, woe is me. Like I am cursed because I am a man of unclean lips. And I come from a people of unclean lips. We see this time and time again. What happens when we encounter God? We're exposed before him. Our finiteness next to his infiniteness. Our our banal reality next to his gloriousness. Our sinfulness next to his holiness. The shepherds experience the presence of God through his angel of the Lord. And they are terrified. Why? Because in that moment, they can see exactly who they are. There's some of us who are watching today 
and you've been keeping God at arm's length. You're keeping him at arm's length because you don't want him to expose you. You see, underneath the facade that your life is perfect, that you've got it all together, that you're a good person, there's a sneaking suspicion that maybe you're not. But if you truly sit down and face God, you can't bury that anymore. It's going to come to the surface. In so many ways, the disruption of this pandemic is actually doing this for us. I mean, you think you're a great parent. And then you have to homeschool your kids for months. You think you're a great spouse and yet you can't go out with your friends anymore and you get stuck with this person. You think you're a great friend, but when was the last time you called someone? You think you're a good person, but when push comes to shove, you're protecting your family. You're doing what's best for you. And you don't care about anyone else or anything else. See, uh, the angels experienced a disruption. This disruption was a divine disruption, a divine encounter. They were going about their business as usual. And yet God showed up and radically disrupted their lives. And in that moment, they were exposed before him. And, and I just want to say this, if you are terrified of facing the reality of who you are, don't stop here. Listen to what the angel says next. This is so important. It says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will bring joy to all people. Why does the angel go to the shepherds instead of Caesar Augustus? Because in that moment, the shepherds had the humility to recognize their insufficiency, which made them receptive to the good news. And is it possible? Is it possible that God has so allowed the season of pandemic to expose us, to prepare our hearts so that when he comes, that we might actually have ears to hear the good news and receive the joy that God has for us. If this is your story, there's an invitation here. An invitation to not just see this disruption again as an inhibitor to life but as a God who loved you so much that he was willing to break up the good thing that you had going so that you could have the much better thing, which was an experience of relationship with him. 
Now, in this moment, there are lots of things that can easily distract us. You see, the, the shepherds could have looked around and said, yeah, I mean, cool angels, but like Caesar's pretty awesome too. He's got a good thing going on. I think we're just going to put our hope in him. In fact, Luke is, is systematically anticipating this. And so when he records what the angel's saying, he does so in such a way to help us see that Jesus is much better than Caesar claims to be. There's a, uh, a inscription that was found in a town in Northern Turkey, it used to be a, a Greek town in, in Northern Turkey. And it's an inscription for a proposal for a new calendar system based around Caesar Augustus's birthday. And it's so helpful for us because it shows what kind of ordinary average people in Jesus' day were saying about Caesar. So the, the people who wrote this inscription said this, since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, whom she filled with virtue that he might benefit humankind. So they say, well, you know, the universe in its great goodness and mercy sent us this great guy, Caesar Augustus, for the benefit of all humankind. She's given him virtue. It continues on in the inscription saying this, sending him as what? A savior, both for us and our descendants, that he might end war. What does Luke say that Jesus is going to be? Or what did the angels say? He's going to bring peace on earth. Caesar Augustus, that he might end war and arrange all things since he, Caesar, by his appearance, excelled even our anticipations. He's better than we could have imagined. Surpassing all previous benefactors, he's better than anyone's come before and not even leaving to posterity. So to the future, any hope of surpassing what he has done. He's better than anyone before and no one has a hope of getting better than him in the future. And since the birthday of this God, Augustus was the beginning of good tidings, literally the same word as good news, as gospel. It was the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. There was a gospel that was going around in Luke's day and age, the gospel of Caesar Augustus. And Luke looks at this gospel and he says, it's a false gospel. Caesar Augustus isn't going to be your hope. And we know that. We know that Caesar Augustus wasn't a God. It's why we don't organize our calendar around his birth or his life or his death, but around Jesus's. What Luke wants us to understand is Jesus is the true savior, the only one who can come and do what we need. And he didn't do that through power and prestige. He did that through humility, emptying himself, going into a stinking feeding trough, leading an ordinary life until he went to a cross, died a criminal's death. But it was through that humble act of service that Jesus actually brought about peace on earth good news of great joy for all people. You can look around right now and you can be tempted to see governmental policy again, health orders, 
everyone doing the same thing. Everyone needs to wear masks. Everyone doesn't need to wear masks. The government needs to spend more money. The government needs to spend less money. We need to have a conservative government. We need to have a progressive government. We can look at all those factors and try and place our hope in them, thinking that they are going to be our savior, that they are going to be the ones that bring about good news, that they are going to be the ones that bring great joy. Luke says, no. There's only one who can do that. And he didn't do that by lording it over you, but by humbling himself and giving his very life for you. One of the greatest frustrations I think a lot of people have had in this pandemic period is looking at our leaders in in some of the moments of hypocrisy. I'm a leader. If someone looked at my life, I'm guaranteed that they would see moments of hypocrisy. So I can't look at government officials and say, oh, how dare you? Because anyone comes into my house, they're going to see that I don't always practice what I preach. I don't always do what I tell others to do. Not because I don't want to, but because I'm human. But Jesus did. He did what he said he would do. And in and through him, we can find our true joy as we start to let go of these other things and actually accept that he and he alone is the one who can bring about our satisfaction, our joy, our salvation, our transformation in this moment. And so we see in this moment, as God divinely disrupts these shepherds, is not simply to mess up their day, to make life harder for them, but to invite them into the abundant life that he has for them. And this brings us into our final picture of disruption. It says in verse 15, when the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. And so they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who were lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what he had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up these things in her heart and pondered them. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. You know, the thing I love about the shepherds response is even though they've had this incredible encounter, like the angel of the Lord, who they say is actually like God, they they say like the Lord has told us about. So they recognize like this is like a divine encounter. And then they have like the choir, the rock band, the epic rock opera of heaven playing out before them even though they have had this experience, they still want to check it out. The angel said, there's going to be a sign. You're going to go to Bethlehem and you're going to find a baby lying in a manger. And they don't just take him at his word. They actually have to go check it out for themselves. If you're someone who is, life has been disrupted and you're starting to ask hard questions about what's going on out there and what you can put your hope in. You don't need to take just our word for it. 
No one's asking you to check your brain at the door. The shepherds weren't asked to do that. They were asked to go and verify what the angel had said. There's nothing wrong with that. It's encouraged. Go and seek out. See for yourself if Jesus is who he says he is and he can do for you what he says he can do. But here's the such the beautiful thing. They go, verse 16, they hurried off and they find Mary and Joseph and they ascertain that yes, what the angels have said is true and they experience Jesus for themselves. That's the invitation. The invitation is for you to experience Jesus for yourself. And when you do, it transforms you. Verse 17, when they had seen them, him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what, at what the shepherds had said. You know, the, the most incredible part of this experience for the shepherds, you know, they had this encounter with the angel. They got to meet Jesus. But here's this incredible, beautiful reality. They weren't just simply disrupted so that they could have an experience, but they were disrupted so that they could be involved in God's disruptive work in the lives of others. What happens? They experience Jesus and then they have to tell every single other person about it. Just imagine how disruptive that would be. You're going about your business. Hey, there's a baker. He's baking his bread. Well, guess what, baker? Drop everything because we got good news. A savior has been born. We saw him. We heard from angels. It's incredible. It's going to change your life. Hey, you over there. Stop what you're doing. You got to hear this. They became part of God's disruptive work. As God continued to pursue all people. See, that's the invitation. It's not simply to come have this experience of Jesus, but to come and actually be part of God's renewing work, to be part of his plan, to bring about his redemption and renewal of all humankind, of all the earth. By disrupting the lives of everyone around you with this earth shattering news line, you know, new headline news uh, reality that Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord, that he has come as a baby, that he has come and gone to the cross and died on our behalf because we could not ever become the kind of people that we were meant to be. And yet he was. And though he did not deserve to die, he did. To free us from the power of sin so that we can actually live differently by the power of his spirit that we can actually be in right relationship with God, experience his presence in our lives so that when things like a pandemic come, do we have to fear? No, we have hope because we know that he is in control. Why? Because he is living in us. We can have peace. We can still have joy. That's the invitation. I want to finish off by just bringing this all together for us. 
So in this Advent season, how do we as followers of Jesus, as disciples respond in our current COVID-19 reality? Well, the first thing we are to do is to have hope. Hope. Paul David Tripp, he's a, an author I've been reading recently, a Christian author, and he says this, and I think it's so helpful for us just to, to recognize where our hope comes from. He says, there's no situation we will encounter that is not ruled by Christ. Our lives are not out of control. Christ carefully administers them for our benefit and his glory. If we can enter into this moment, understanding that behind all of it is a God who's at control, bringing all things together for our good and his glory, then it's going to completely change the way that we respond. We're not going to be anxious or fearful or frustrated. I mean, there'll be moments where those things pop to the surface, but we'll take those thoughts captive and submit them to the reality that there is good news, that God is in control. It's not health officials. It's not governments. It's not even a virus. It's not, you know, people making vaccines, but God. And it gives us new eyes, not to simply look at this as a disruption, but as an invitation into God's divine, glorious disruption in our world, to see it as an opportunity as he exposes for everyone around us that the things that they thought were so powerful, so important, or even so perfect about their own lives and their own works are exposed for what they truly are, which is lack, that we can proclaim this good news message that there is a better king. And when we submit to him, we can truly experience joy. Uh, For those whose spiritual lives are, let's say on a journey, you're journeying, you're not sure where you're supposed to land or, or maybe your spiritual lives have waned. And this pandemic has stretched you further than you anticipated you were able to stretch. There's an invitation here. The invitation is to not simply see this as a disruption of your life, but to see this as God's disruption of your life. His moment of getting your attention and inviting you to experience him. And in both cases, whether you've been a Christian your whole life and your spiritual life is fruitful or you're just starting this process off or you're renewing your relationship with Jesus. All of us are invited into his disruptive work that he wants to do in and through his people in and through this pandemic moment. So church, Let's not miss it. Let's not miss this opportunity as we advent, as we await for a vaccine, for an end to the pandemic. Let's be reminded that we ultimately advent and wait for the return of our King. And in the meantime, he invites us to be part of his disruptive work to bring this good news message to bear that can bring hope that no amount of vaccine can bring that can bring joy that no amount of return to normal can bring to a world that is desperately in need of some good news this Christmas. Let me pray.
Father, I just want to thank you for this disruptive moment. I confess that I hate it. I don't like it. It frustrates me. I've pushed against it a lot. As I read your word, I'm confronted by the reality that you are a God who's in control and that I can trust you in the midst of it. And that if you have allowed this to take place, it is for your good purposes. And so father, I pray and ask that for our church family, that you would use us in the midst of this, that you would open up our city. We pray 1002 every day that you would send more workers in the harvest. We believe that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. May this pandemic be a place where people who have been sidelined become frontline workers, where people who weren't ready become ripe harvests, receptive to your good news. And may this Christmas be a reminder of that reality. I pray this in your name. Amen.